our journey is about the journey of agriculture. Agriculture from the very beginning has used technology as a complement, not as a replacer. You know, from the first hoe, the first, you know, stick that pushes in the ground to put a seed in, or the first lasso or, uh, you know, shepherd's hook. Um, technology has always been a complementary partner when best leveraged in ag. And I think that's going to be true indefinitely. Finally, we don't think the world as it is is inevitable. We think the world as it is is a result of decisions that have been made by people that have been alive. And since we're alive, we want to make some decisions that we think will lead us to a world that we like. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. I come across some really interesting stories that I like sharing with you that are listening to Farm to Table Talk. And I've got one today that I'm, I'm really happy to welcome Caleb Wilkins. Caleb, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hey, glad, glad to be here. Nice to meet you, Roger. I know that people that are listening to Farm to Table Talk and have listened to other conversations know that they are fascinated with people that have some interesting journeys that are kind of authentic in the way that they are connecting uh, something to do with food, something to do with farming, uh, people that have are pursuing dreams uh, and sometimes doing things that are helpful to Mother Earth. I could go on and on and on because and unfortunately, I do go on and on and on. So I should I should stop now. <laughs> and, and Caleb, you have a background where you one of these folks that you've been involved in technology and now you find yourself involved in farming and agriculture. Set this up for me. Okay. So you must have what will be the equivalent of an elevator speech when we all used to go stand around in front of elevators. But but when you have to explain what it is you're doing, what, what is it? How do you explain this? Yeah, uh, great question. Uh, we're still figuring that out. Now, we think we know what we're doing, Roger. But, you know, the truth is, um, as we get deeper and deeper into the agricultural world, we realize that we're not always sure what we what, that we're doing what we thought we were going to do. Um, what we're focused on doing is being a foundational partner of production for livestock producers, and we focus first on meat, milk, and egg livestock producers. So that's that's what we're doing. But on a day to day basis, it often does not feel like that. Yeah, yeah. So livestock producers it covers a covers a wide range. Obviously, yeah. I mean livestock. So we got poultry and pigs and cattle and sheep and 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 all those they need they need feed so as your end of it what do you have to deal with i think in fact i know the answer to some of this but you, is the is the area focusing on producing feed or are there other areas that are equally important to you yeah there are other areas that are equally important but it's, it's not our starting point our starting point is on feed so producing feed for the livestock that are going into meat, milk, and egg production. So our, our journey right now has started at a point where we look at what is it that the farmer or the livestock producer uh, needs most. So, you know, when we, we started this company uh, three years ago, three years and two months ago, I think, 
And because we're outsiders to the world of agriculture, you know, we didn't want to make any assumptions. So we called, I think, 320 producers before we really got started. And we said, you know, tell us about your day to day. What what's going on? What's what working? What's not working? You know, uh, what are your biggest problems? And we wrote it all down as listened, you know, as well as we could. We had to learn a lot of new language and learn a lot of new acronyms and uh, some new heuristics. But as we went through that process, what we learned is that if we want to help a livestock producer, we don't need to show up with spreadsheets and uh, new apps and uh, new gizmos. What we need to do is help them solve the problem around consistent feed and then making that consistent feed as nutritious as possible and always available. And so our, our first thought was, well, can we do something on farm? Can we do, can we make an, an implement that will assist the livestock producer on farm? So we came up with, uh, you know, on a vertical farm that's small, sits inside of a shipping container and produces a consistent daily uh, forage that's a premium in, in quality, consistent in nutritional value, and it's fresh, it's living. So it has all these things that a non-living feed just cannot have with phytonutrients, enzymes, and vitamin levels, and, and some bioavailability. So that's that's where we started. There's other things that are also very important to us, but that's not our starting point. Our starting point is on-farm, vertical farming for the production of livestock feed uh, that has all the benefits of a fresh you know, year-round feed that's produced every single day, whether it's negative 30 degrees outside or 120 degrees outside. Um, you have that consistent feed production so that you can you can give that to your animals and you know improve uh, their performance. That's where we started. Uh, we've come a ways since then, but but we still are focused primarily on that. You know, it's it's really intriguing, and we're going to jump into this more and more because uh, you know I often tell people that if you look around the country, you'll see land that should be uh, should be uh, harvested with with livestock especially yep. ruminant animals taking care of grasslands. But you're currently based in Utah. We are. Beautiful state. But I've driven through chunks of Utah where cows have to pack a lunch because, <laughs> you know, they need like 50, 60 acres to keep a cow going because it's sparse. There's a lot of high desert country. Um, and, you know, they move them up maybe into the mountains for summer for grazing. But... Even when you move around to try to hit where pasture is, there's there's downsides where the, they need to be able to produce you know forages of some of some sort, and um, and you zeroed in on that. What what does that look like, and how did you find yourself getting there? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great point. First off, um, something that I've I've found as I've explored the world of agriculture on my journey is how much I am impressed by livestock producers, the resiliency, you know, the things you have that, that face here in Utah, there's about, oh, I think 800 and something thousand head of cattle are raised in Utah at any given time. And to your point, spring and summer, uh, most of the cattle are up in the mountains grazing and foraging and the cattlemen are hauling water uh, because there's not enough water up there. They're, they're constantly moving in pursuit of fresh forage. And they, they do a great job managing the grazing so they don't have overgrazing issues. And there's all these positive outcomes where we reduce some of the fire risk um, and, and some of those things. But the, the difficulty in it for the livestock producer is so intense that they're typically working a full-time job 
to support their ability to raise cattle in, yeah. in Utah, at least. And, and nationally, I think there's some good averages where most uh, beef producers are spending uh, 300 or more days off farm is what they call it. So they're spending the majority of their time working in an office job or for a government uh, position, and then they're farming at night and the weekends. Um, and they don't, they don't really take holidays because their holiday time is spent moving cattle or something like that. So as, as we explored that and learned these lessons uh, from these producers, we thought, hey, we can't replace land. We don't want to. Agriculture should always be tied to the land. And there's some real benefit in that. But can we enhance it? Or can we support it or extend it? And so looking at how we could do that led us to this place where we said, okay, what if we produce a fresh forage that can complement the pasture, can complement the high grazing or the summertime or the winter time? Um, and so it's always a part of the ration year round, uh, but it's not replacing any one thing. Uh, would that be valuable? And it turned out uh, it is valuable. But it also is acceptable. You know, when you come into the world of ag and you're an outsider, people don't want to hear your solutions. They want to hear that you're listening and that you're taking their advice and incorporating it into something that improves their day to day. I was on a call once, Roger, with uh, some beef producers uh, about a year, two years ago. And uh, the very first thing they said was, you know, what's your name? Caleb. Okay. The second thing they said is, how many years do you have in uh, beef production? And I said, well, zero, uh, none. And they said, great, we are not interested in this call. You have nothing to offer us. And they hung up. And they had no interest in hearing what I showed up with. Yeah. So we, you know, we changed that. We said, okay, tell us about what you're doing and, and what's valuable to you. And hey, what if, what if we had this thing that extended your pasture or that allowed you to put more animals onto it or smooth out their inconsistency in their feed and improve production, help their health? or other things, would that be interesting? And sure enough, well, yeah, of course, that's my livelihood. That's very interesting. What do you have? And that's, that's how we walked our way into this, into this space. Yeah. Well, I would imagine that you were pulling back on some experiences you had in your other careers before you got into agriculture, too, that it's not unusual that people really don't want to hear what you have to say as much as they, the first thing, they've got things to tell you. Yeah, and, uh, I've often I've often learned that I thought I'd go somewhere, travel a long ways to get to a meeting or something. You think, well, I'm going to tell them what I have on mind. But the thing that made the best connection, if I spent more time listening. Yes, you must have done a lot of listening and you had to eat some humble pie at first uh, because you had these great ideas. And people say, hey, again, how much time have you spent on a horseback, you know, right? <laughs> chasing cows. Exactly. That. that that uh, narrows it down in another way, though, too, because you're talking about your role and getting yourself into agriculture. It sounds like uh, at first you're particularly focused on what's benefiting ruminant animals. Would that is that safe to say? Uh, it's safe to say that's where we started. So milk production uh, from you know, dairy cow, dairy goat, that was our first uh, entry point. And then naturally expanding that to beef production as a, a ruminant uh, animal is, uh, even though their feed is different and their life cycles are different, um, there is some related knowledge that we could extend. We're trying to extend, you know, in the most reasonable way the, the knowledge that we have for the impact on the producer. But 
you know, we think we can go all the way through the entire livestock chain and, and even serve pigs poultry. And poultry? And, absolutely. So poultry is a big target of ours. And we have clients that feed uh, our feedstock to uh, poultry and they do very well. And it's a big deal to get into poultry. So let's go back to this then. One, so you're working with creating systems with within containers? That's where we started. So it, we took an uh, old 45-foot high-cube shipping container, recycled it up, you know, upcycled it. I think it's the right term that I've learned. All right. And turned it into a vertical farm that spits out, you know, 3,000 pounds of fresh feed every single day on farm. It needs a, a water hose, you know, hookup and, and 220 single phase power. So the idea was let's not give work to the farmer. Let's not make them build a barn, set up new power lines, three phase power, whatever it is. Let's not make them learn a new feed. Let's just say, Hey, if we showed up with an automated robotic system that manages inputs, delivered outputs to you that, that could be fed to your livestock, would that be interesting? And, and that was the first yes we got. So, okay, how do we tackle that problem? And shipping containers were just conveniently available. So that's where we went. You know, I can't get out of my mind. One of the first points that you made, Caleb, was this was not to replace these systems, uh, but it had a role to play to be complementary uh, and, and fill in some of those gaps because we haven't figured out a way to um, have summer year round uh, yeah there's a there's a few places everybody likes to go vacation that think they're close but aside from that um season seasonals make a difference on on fresh food production and um, so when you go inside with this let's explain what it is you grow and then we'll have to kind of get into how you're dealing with all the requirements of nutrients and light and water and so forth Sure. Uh, great, great point. So the what we're doing today is taking grain and sprouting it and turning grain into a heavy starch, um, you know, dormant um, feed into a living feed that takes the starch, converts it to sugar. So it's a high energy feed. It's a much safer feed when you're thinking about ruminant animals and acidosis or overfeeding starch. Um, then, then it has all these other benefits beyond the starch converting to sugar. Um, it has enzymatic behavior and activity that improves uh, the digestibility of, of your feed overall, your total feed in the rumen. Um, you have elevated vitamin levels that improve, uh, you know, the bacterial, um, you know, activity in the rumen and, and the animal itself. Uh, then you have uh, phytonutrients that get expressed in a living plant. And, you know, what, what was inspiring for us about the phytonutrient side is, uh, why are vegetables interesting? You know, vegetables are interesting, not because just because of taste and, and texture, but mm. they have fiber and they have phytonutrients. And those are well understood to be beneficial to the consumer. But we don't really do that and think that way when it comes to livestock production. We think about stored feed. And, and that's it makes sense. It's, 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 it's a no brainer that we think about stored feed. Because we want to produce year-round. And to your point, summer is not available year-round. Spring's not available year-round. And what we found through agricultural production, the science in ag, is that spring produces some of the most nutrient-dense feed. You know, when you think about an alfalfa field, Utah has tons of alfalfa. And, we, and uh, the high mountain pastures produce the most nutrient-dense. 
alfalfa because it grows slowly in that early spring weather. It's slowly growing. The minerals are rich in the soil and it absorbs it at a really nice ratio. So it's nutrient dense. It starts to get warmer. The alfalfa grows faster and it doesn't have the same nutrient density. So the quality and impact on the animal goes down a little bit. And that goes, that's true until maybe the final cutting in the fall when again, it's cool and it grows slowly. So you're thinking about that and we're looking at our, our ability to make an impact. We say, okay, what if we could recreate that spring and fall nutrient density in a fresh feed and then have a pasture-like experience for the animal year round? What if we could create that pasture uh, in a vertical farming environment, we stabilize temperature and stabilize humidity in those environmental conditions, and it produces feed, kick it out of the machine and feed it to the animal as part of their diet. It's not meant to be the whole diet. It's meant to be a complementary part that enhances the whole diet and improves so they still, the whole diet. So they still may be able to feed hay or some grains or something in addition Absolutely. to so that even that makes sense too. I mean, that's that's appealing. That's a not all or nothing, but you're you're improving the ration and and making that product that is coming from those limited seasonal periods last longer. So that seems very intriguing. So, but you kept talking about sprouts. So um take us inside. Let's walk inside, let's walk inside a container. Are we seeing flats of, pro of product, uh, you know, on, on one whole wall or both sides or something like that as you as you walk into it? Uh, well, so we're, we're so interested in efficiency for the farmer. You can't walk inside the container. It is jam packed um, to produce the 3000 pounds a day. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and, it, and it's, there's going to be 11 layers to it. So there'll be there'll be there's growing on 11 levels. And then there's the harvesting at the end. And, you know, just to be really clear, I say growing, but we're really sprouting, which is different than growing. So the input to our machine is very simple. The inputs are water, electricity, and seed. And there's a big range of seed that we can use. We don't have to have a monoculture seed. We can represent what a pasture offers. You know, if you have an animal out grazing, they're eating, in many cases, hundreds of different types of plants, but most commonly at least 35 to 45 different types of plants. So you could have mixtures of seed, you know, to really represent a more holistic diet than a monoculture diet. But let's say you're just using barley grain, which is where most of the market in sprouts started, barley or wheat grain. But uh, our system has a silo box that sits next to it that holds three or four months worth of grain. It talks to what we call the pasture box. It augurs in, brings in the right amount of seed into that pasture box. And it's fully automated. So that pasture box then puts a certain amount of seed in uh, to trays. And these trays move through the system in a uh, serpentine pattern. And what we're doing is every day putting in new seed and every day harvesting six-day-old sprouts. So it's not a long cycle. It's very different than controlled environment ag for human consumption. Our inputs are food, are water, seed, and electricity. It's no nutrient packages and uh, microbiomes you got to manage and all these other environmental controls. It's very, very simple. I keep the temperature really stable. I add water. I add seed at a certain rate, a certain depth and you know there's some science there that, that's really well established by our microbiology team our micro microgreen institute team and we partner with cornell and usu and the university of florida to, to manage that science 
But what we're then doing is letting the seed have a perfect day, six days in a row. And what happens is that seed quickly germinates, it sprouts, and then it, it, it elongates its sprout. And during that process, you get all the magic of the seed. It's a, it's a bioreactor. So it's taking that dormant energy and turning it into living energy, converting the starch into sugar. Uh, those phytonutrients become active. The enzymes become active. Your vitamins are elevated. And then we harvest it and, and uh, feed it to the animal as a portion of their feed. And our, here, here's an example of the impact of that. Um, at Cornell, we did um, uh, a study on high-performing dairy cows. And I didn't know what a high-performing dairy cow meant. No. So I had to up-level and, and learn that high-performing dairy cow, they're producing a tremendous amount of milk. In some cases, 104 to 110 pounds of milk a day. It's incredible. Right. Right. Their diets are so dialed in. I think there was 12 to 14 items that they're consuming in their diet. Their genetics are high-level genetics, and, and it's taken a tremendous amount of science and, and, and ag uh, know-how to develop these high-performing dairy cows. And they're, they're, mo- they're modern marvels, truly, uh, of, of science and yeah. of animal husbandry, because the animal husbandry is very high uh, for these high-performing dairy cows. We said, what if we did a 10% dry matter inclusion rate um, uh, for our feed. What that means is you take out all the moisture, look at the dry matter. Here's the amount of dry matter we're feeding to these cows every day to get the 104 to 110 pounds of milk. What portion of that will we carve out for this new feed to see the impact of that feed? And, and Cornell is full of some really amazing people. And uh, we have a Dr. Uh, Joe McFadden there that is just phenomenal. And he said, why don't we start with 10% uh, dry matter inclusion? And we're, you know, we don't know any better. So sure, let's, let's start with 10%. And we replaced four items out of the 12 to 14 feedstuffs that they were feeding these high-performing dairy cows. We only replaced four of them with our, our, our inclusion rate. And we ended up with a 7% increase in feed efficiency. So they ate, ate less food, produced uh, more energy-corrected milk. The butter fat was increased. Uh, the volumes were, were, were stabilized, but it was, it was better milk, more of it. Uh, with 10% of our, our feed stuff, which, you know, was really interesting to us because that means I don't have to replace everything. I have to even target one specific thing. What I can do is look at how do I complement the, the production uh, in this environment and then adjust it for that particular environment. You know, we want to be a partner production. We don't want to come in and say, you should do it this way. You want to say, how are you doing it? What are your goals? Why are you doing it that way? Okay, great. Now we understand Here's how we think we can come in and partner with you to enhance it or to extend it, but not to replace it and not certainly not to, to say we know better than you because we don't. We, we just don't know better than these folks. Well, that makes sense. And it's such a quick turnaround from the time you're getting the seeds in there and, and, you're, and you're able to harvest, but you're looking at one spot, which now, so you're... It's it's soil less. I mean, you're you or is it a substrate that they're setting in? No, so they don't sit in anything. So in in this particular stage, so what we like to think about is the whole stage of ag uh, and the cycles. There, the grain is raised in the ground, right. which is perfect. We don't want to change that. We don't want to raise grain outside right. of the ground. The grain is raised in the ground. It's harvested, stored. And then put into our machines to enhance the value of that grain for livestock production. And it literally goes into a tray for a certain depth, certain amount. And we, we put water on it in particular ways uh, and then manage the, air, the temperature and the airflow. And then six days later, 
we have a sprout that's you know uh, eight to twelve inches tall and has all the the characteristics that we're looking for. Man, that's amazing! And you don't you have to add anything to the water? We don't. I just talked to somebody the other night that was making her own kefir and um, describing how you just take plain milk, but you have to add something to it. You know, it's like yeast right. or something. And a catalyst. Yeah, a catalyst. And and the fact is that with these seeds, they've got so much power in them. They can get by for that short period of time without having to have uh, the uh, healthy microbiome. Because in a way, that's one of the things that has me a little suspect of a lot of the vertical farming ideas is that when you're raising a whole crop to the to the fruit or the vegetables and that um, you don't have all the beneficial things that we're still figuring out about uh, what the microbiome is contributing, that makes me wonder what it is we're finding out that we're actually missing. But in your case, it's such a short trip that you've got the power that's naturally in the seeds that's able to express itself. It's not a long time of wondering about if it's getting fed the right nutrients or, or not. That's right. Uh, you, you're, you're exactly right. So our, our core philosophy is to not replace the power of natural agriculture. You know, regenerative ag uh, is, is trying to do the same thing. We, we love regenerative ag ideology and programs. Um, what we're saying is simply we're not replacing any of it. We don't want to remove the land from the equation. We don't want to remove the animal from the equation. We don't want to remove the producer from the equation. What we want to do is enhance at the right steps. And we think, and the science right now supports it, that intervening at the seed level and just grabbing the seed uh, and then sprouting it rather than rolling it or doing something else to it uh, is very valuable. And it's because of what you just said, short time. We don't have to have other inputs because of that shortness in time. I mean, you if you put, you could put all sorts of magical ingredients into the water because we're sprouting the uptake for the for the um, and, and the conversion is, is not even meaningful because it's just a sprout. In fact, um, there's no real um, uh, value in any of those inputs because of that. So apparently, for that period of the of the life of a plant uh, as it's, it's as it's growing, soil is kind of unnecessary anyway. I mean, it's just it's when you put it in the ground and you're planting outside. I mean, it does grow. It's got soil all around it. But it sounds it's like naturally, if it's just getting if it's just getting moisture, it it's liberating, um, producing and growing for at yes. least that stage. For just that stage, uh, so so the soil is valuable in sprouting for managing the moisture, managing the oxygen because it needs oxygen and moisture and the temperature, and then giving it just kind of cover from all the things that would eat that seed or intervene with it and keep it from sprouting. You know, to sprout, they need to absorb. Let's say barley, for example, it needs to absorb 35 to 45% of its weight as water to begin the germination process. Then it needs to experience a 35 degrees Celsius day. So if it's five degrees Celsius outside, it takes seven days to complete germination. If it's 35 degrees Celsius, it, it does it in one day. And then, you know, it, it completes that, that sprouting process. Once it begins to grow, it must have soil. And we all know, especially, you know, in an, uh, an environment like yours in the farm to table talk world, that the value of the soil is tremendously important and that good soil impacts the growth in a way that bad soil can never do. Uh, but we're not getting into growing. We're just sprouting. Yeah. 
Boy, that's fascinating. I want to take a quick break right now to to let you I tell people where they can find information on this whole pasture box technology, because we're going to go on and talk about a couple other things yet. But I think that somebody is scratching their head right now. So that's intriguing. Uh, yeah. Where can they find more information? So right now we have a, a really simple website at uh, renaissanceag.com. And that's that's where you're going to find everything that uh, we're willing to put out in the public. So we, we don't have we're not we're not blowing a big horn there and trying to say, come look at us right now. Uh, we have a tremendous amount of of demand just from the relationships we have, relationships we have today. And then, you know, we, we kind of keep it as close to the chest as possible. So right now you can go to renaissanceag.com and see some things about our pasture box system and some of our philosophy where we think, you know, the right way to think about agriculture is to look back on agriculture and say that, you know, that the past is going to be the future. It's not going to be some lunar landscape with some, you know, uh, uh, vats making fake meat and uh, fake plants that, that are go that's going to be interesting about ag. We think it's really about looking backwards and pairing good technology with, with, with what we've learned from the past to be complementary of each other rather than uh, reductive or replacement style. I can, I can tell you right now, the biggest challenge people are going to run into is remembering how to spell Renaissance. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great idea. And it's been a great idea for hundreds of years and, and, uh, and it's being utilized. I like it that it's your name uh, right now, but it's, uh, I always have to stop and think now, wait a minute, did that have two S's or not? But two S's. So it's, it, you're right. It's a long name. Um, and we've made it really simple on the hat. We even have it looking backwards, you know, the R is backwards. Yeah, oh, no, that's, that's, well, I, I think it's, um, now, let, let, another thing. So somebody says they want to explore it. They can call. They can find out more information and so forth. But ultimately, it comes down to you actually have something that you can market, right? Yes. And, and people say, finally, they've done the research. They looked at it all. They think it works. They combine it with whatever their operation is right now. And they can say, hey, send me a box. I mean, can you can you put it together and ship it to somebody and get them up and running? Yeah, you know, that, that's the idea with the pasture box is that it can be shipped uh, by train or truck or even boat. Um, there are some modifications to it that get in the way on the boat. But thus far, with train and truck, uh, we don't have any issues. And then we have uh, a showroom at our first client uh, in here in Utah. So if you want to come out and see it, uh, we're happy to take you through the technology. It's in a much larger application than inside the pasture box. Uh, the pasture box is designed for small to mid-sized clients that maybe have a hundred or less animals. Uh, you know, one pasture box will feed uh, 86 high-performing dairy cows at a 10% dry matter inclusion rate. So, you know, it's 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 ideal for 50 to 100 animals is what we're targeting with the pasture box. The same technology inside of it, but free of the shipping container, um, is uh, we have on display at uh, one of our larger clients here in Utah. That one makes 16,000 pounds a day because this client needs more than 3,000 pounds a day. But it's all the same components, same parts and pieces, same uh, ideology. It's just a different volume. Um, and so we're, we welcome them to come out and we're ha happy to show the system so you can touch it, feel it uh, and be a part of that. Uh, but yes, the, the pasture box is designed to be shipped to you, dropped off same day and you're up and running you know, right away. You know, I don't know if it's rude to ask about pricing, but it, it can be of a ballpark range. I mean, this this uh, uh, 
kind of generally, you know, I know it must vary a little bit, but some people are wondering it must cost a lot of money. Um, is that yeah, an awkward question? No, it's not. No, look, the only thing that's awkward is uh, what's my BMI because and it's awkward because I don't know it. But uh, there are other than that, there's no awkward questions. The the pasture box we retail that for two hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars. It produces three thousand pounds a day year round. Uh, however, you know we also have a subscription program. So rather than having to come up with a loan or or you know invest all that capital into one machine. Uh, we have a program where you can just begin to pay a monthly subscription and receive, you know, the the system will drop it off, uh, set it up. We remotely monitor it. It's, it's, it's tied into the web so we can do remote monitoring and maintenance and, and those types of things. But that means the farmer then just pays a monthly subscription to get access to it and to, to have access to the feed. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. And uh, it reminds me so much, though, of... Uh, microgreens uh that um when i go to the farmer's market they're fairly expensive to buy a clamshell of microgreens but they do a lot for you but now let's let's broaden this now because you have this really great concept you've you've got a, a a broader area you found yourself a regenerative agriculture beyond uh just the pasture box uh, what are the other things you're involved with yeah very good question so as I mentioned, we started here. How do we be this foundational partner of production from feed? And we started with that largest volume piece. It was forage, forage, forage was, was what we kept hearing, the lack of availability, consistency, and nutrition, those types of things. But we also heard the second thing that we heard was the price of protein is very high and the cost of my waste is very high. Often the cost wasn't identified as a numerical cost. It was an emotional cost. The neighbors are mad about the smell. The city's upset about, you know, the way I'm managing my waste and my manure piles or my offalls. I can't get permits to slaughter more animals. These types of things for that third voice. So first forage, second protein, and then third waste. And, you know, we stumbled around for a while on how do we solve something like that? Um, and we looked in probably all the wrong places until we finally found the right one. And we found a partner um, that is very meaningful to us. And they've allowed us to use our same machine, our same technology, uh, but to take the waste from agriculture, the manure, the offalls, that type of thing, upcycle it into protein, fat, and fiber, and turn that back into meaningful inputs for livestock production as well as reducing you know, the negative outputs that are not actually negative, but they're just viewed negatively by neighbors or by the politicians or, or the city council. And they look at, hey, where's all that manure going to go? Oh, we're going to spread it on farms. Okay, well, we actually have enough already being spread on farms. We have no more room for it. What are you going to do now? Um, we don't like it in the runoff into our water, You know those types of pushbacks uh, that our clients are getting. So we extended our machines. Uh, to allow for taking waste as an input rather than the seed, and then uh, upcycling that waste into protein, fat, and fiber. And then fertilizer is the the, the final piece there that can then be spread out on the fields without uh, you know the impact of a chemical-based fertilizer. So that's where we've now gone into uh, at, on top of the forage. We had the forage and now we have a protein, fat, and fiber and fertilizer complement that takes the waste as an input 
and turns it back into a valuable input. So it becomes regenerative in its own way. It's not regenerative like a regenerative land program. We have animals grazing, you have cover crops and, and multiple crop types, and you're building this really neat soil biome. That is not our play in regenerative. Our complement to regenerative is to allow any producer to take their waste, whether they're a slaughterhouse or a beef, meat, milk, or egg producer, take their waste and turn it back regeneratively on farm into fat, protein, and fiber and fertilizer. So that's that's how we are now playing in this space. So, so let me go a little deeper. Okay. So the, the first input is the feedstock. And if you compare it to the forage side, that feedstock is seed, right? We put a certain amount of seed into every tray and then we add water. That's and right. That, and we control the environment. On the, the other side, this protein, fat, fiber, and fertilizer side, the feedstock is the waste. So we can take the manure. Let's say I'm, I'm a dairy farm. I have a tremendous amount of manure coming out of my cows every day. They're very efficient animals. They're eating a lot. They're pooping a lot. That, that manure has real value. Um, and there's a lot of it that can be tapped in traditional programs today, but there's still a lot of untapped energy and nitrogen in that waste, the manure and the, the urine. Yes. We want to take that waste, that manure, put it into our trays and we, we will still add water to maintain a, a certain moisture content, but then we want to add black soldier fly larva to it. But we're you not doing this. To it? Um, add, add black, to it? black soldier fly larva. Okay. Um, black soldier fly is a, a native uh, fly to the United States. Uh, actually, most places in the world, it's a native. Right. It is a misnomer as a fly. We call it a fly just because it's only a fly for three days. Um, it doesn't have a mouth. It drinks and reproduces as a fly. It spends most of its life as a larva. And this larva is, is an enzymatic digester. It's a phenomenal uh, little larva that can break down organic feedstuffs very effectively. And what you have is you take that raw manure in, feed it to the black soldier fly larva. On the other end, uh, you get uh, fertilizer that's bioavailable to the, to the land and the soil and the plants. And you get the larva. And the larva has uh, really strong characteristics for protein, fat, and fiber. And then you can feed that larva live or you can, you can bake it or cook it and feed it as a whole dry larva that's full of the, the protein, fat, and fiber. Or you could then do a third step and you, could, you can press it and get the oil out of it and then take the, the, the remaining part, you know, the, the, the protein, and make a protein pellet out of it. Um, so it becomes, it's a, it's a really good friend to agriculture because now I'm producing on site out of my natural waste cycle, protein, fat, and fiber. And black soldier fly larva is a growing uh, industry within the United States, but also internationally. Now, the fertilizer part, does it go back on traditional soils? It can. It can go on to traditional soils. It, the, the nutrient value of the fertilizer piece is good enough to be a feedstock as well. You could blend that up and feed it to chickens, for example, or to aquaculture. Um, but we think of it traditionally as a fertilizer to go back onto the land, non-chemical based fertilizer. So the protein output, though, is it uh, in includes some applications for direct human consumption, or is it all aimed at livestock or, 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 or feeding the plants? We're focused on livestock um, and feeding the plants. So, so we don't think of it as a direct for human application. Um, I think 
socially, it would not be accepted to take waste from an animal, feed it to a bug, and then eat the bug directly. I think I think there's nothing wrong with it scientifically. Um, you know, we're not going to increase pathogen transfer. It doesn't become a vector if you treat it properly. You know, uh, it, it's scientifically fine. I think emotionally and philosophically, there's some big hurdles there culturally. I'm not even interested in it. I'm not even chasing that. What I'm saying is let's focus on taking the waste from ag production, turning it back into an input for ag production and let it cycle there. Um, and I think it's a very That's powerful. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. And in fact, as we as we speak, I've gone onto your your website and you have a do you have a graphic uh, that I should have been looking at before I even asked my question, because it, it's uh, it gives you a little idea about how this works. But in the meantime, this first section that we talked about, the pasture box and then going on into the protein and fertilizers. These are exciting areas. Um, and I assume for electricity uh are you using are you using solar or, or conventional electric sources both uh I, I don't think one's better than the other you know the supply chain for solar is fraught with issues um but it can be very effective so our, our systems consume a low enough amount of energy that a solar array could be housed on top of the system and power uh the system itself with the right battery pack now, we, we've explored that for our off-grid clients and i think we have a, a meaningful solution there but uh, conventional power or solar, either can work. Okay. I think some of our listeners are getting the picture and I'm getting the picture. I'm seeing the pasture in the box. You're seeing these other applications. You're seeing, I think, the ways that you can be uh, kind of regenerative. I have to ask you the question of, of the day lately. And that is, are there, are there any implications pro or con for artificial intelligence as this technology journey continues? Sure. Uh, both. There are pros and cons in this ag journey uh, and specifically for our technology. Uh, I will I will want to tease out, though, because I am a, uh, a very uh, I can tend to be annoying, Roger. I want to tease out that I don't think artificial intelligence exists yet. The right. we, you know, we have phenomenal machine learning, large language models, copy paste. Um, some really cool applications there. And our our barrier for differentiating differentiating those is so low, it feels like artificial intelligence. But um, in, in the state that we're at right now, I think that type of technology is very powerful for two things. One, for improving the productivity of the machine. So we have some some algorithms built in to learn and make sure that we're we're maximizing the value of the machine for our clients using the right amount of energy. Right amount of water, the right temperatures, and 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 then making those types of adjustments. I think the second benefit for these types of algorithms is to understand um, how to how to be ahead of the game on service and maintenance, how to see a problem coming before it actually shows up, so that it's a quick it's a quick intervention rather than a uh, at you know after the fact post mortem intervention. That's the second one, and the third one is then to look at all the data coming in from production of the feedstuffs in our machines to production impact in the real world for the animal. You know, we're talking about that feed efficiency uh, learning that we had out of Cornell. Well, we do uh, backgrounding cow-calf and finishing at USU, and we look at the rumen behavior at University of Florida. That's all amazing. But on-farm practice is all that matters in that making sure each one of our clients can get the best performance out of their animal 
um, requires some of this data collection, these algorithms to look at and say, hey, guess what? When you bought that premium premium alfalfa, your feedstuff didn't, I mean, your, your milk production or your rate of gain did improve and it was worth it or it didn't and it wasn't worth it. And so that's where I think these algorithms and the, the large data handling can become very valuable in agriculture, but also in our machine specifically, is to tie the production that comes out of our machine to the production that comes out of the animal. And then ed- help the farmer understand where they could invest or they shouldn't invest in their time. I think that becomes really interesting. Well, it's an interesting perspective. Now, this is a good time, I think, to go back and say, you probably didn't, at one time in your life, you didn't think you were going to be a, a farmer That's in, right. In, in Utah. So tell us about your journey. How did you get here? What did you start out doing and uh, before you found yourself doing these things we've been discussing? Yeah. So so a little part of my journey that does have an impact today is the first few years of my life, I grew up on a hobby farm. My mother was an ag science major. and She always had a dream of having a little farm. So we had, we had cows, uh, goats, pigs, and chickens, and we harvested all of them and, and fed them. And, but this is what we ate. We were very poor. Think of like the poorest hobby farm you could imagine out in the middle of the desert in California, in the high desert, uh, near Landers. Um, small little home, maybe, you know, 10 feet by 15 feet or something like that. It was a tiny little place, one little bathroom, three kids, my parents, and it was just the most blissful life. And it was amazing. But we left that very early and I, I, I never had an experience like that again. And I, so I didn't imagine going back into ag or even being close to ag. Um, I wanted to be uh, a neurosurgeon in high school uh, and I had good grades and uh, I, I, tended to, to apply myself in school, but I, I developed my grandmother's trimmer. So she has a trimmer in her hands. And so I realized, Hey, you know, I can't be a neurosurgeon. If I come in shaky, that's going to scare everybody. Uh, and there's going to be the last surgery they ever experienced. So I shifted away from that. Uh, I found psychology to be really interesting. I thought I had a lot of applications generally. I don't agree with a lot of psychology. I thought that was interesting too, to engage with something I didn't agree with. Um, as I was wrapping up my final year in school for my psychology degree, I got a job at a startup in software, software company local to Utah in Provo, Utah. It was a small little company. It was about 30 something employees when I joined and I was exposed to the business world and I was in the sales side of things initially. Um, and I'd never imagined myself being a salesman. You know, my father always said he was too honest to be a salesman. And so now Roger, my mother would call me once a month as I started this journey. And she would say, Hey, I think the first time she said, I think you should get a job that's relevant to your major. You know, you major in psychology, go get a job that's relevant to that. I said, mom, psychology and sales go hand in hand. It's, it's a great marriage. So she gave up on that one. The next month she would call me, you know, I think you should get a job that has skills that are transferable from one company to the next. I was like, mom, sales is transferable. You know, even the CEO should be the best salesperson. You know, this Roger, you've been a CEO. You, your job is to understand the market and how you fit or don't fit in that market, and make adjustments accordingly in that role. So then she gave up on that. And then she called me like, well, you should do one that uh, is interesting. And I was like, well, it is interesting. I'm doing it. Then she gave up on that. And finally, she said, well, you should do one that makes money. And so I, I shared some of the money I was making. And she, she stopped questioning it. You know, she left it alone. I was like, great, good for you. Um, in that journey, so I, I learned a lot of things. I was blessed to be part of a company that was led by really strong leaders and had a, a great product market fit at the right timing. You know, timing is so important. It's more important than the product. 
And we had a great time. And that company blew up. Uh, and I got to got to sit on that train and be a part of that experience. I learned from that what I like and what I don't like. And then eventually I, you know, I I found um that there were other people that felt the same way. So that my my co-founder in this company, he doesn't like his name to be used, but my co-founder in this company and I met at this tech startup in 2010. And we've known each other for a very long time, but we both had some of the same issues with technology. It's not an issue necessarily. It's just a lack of meaningful satisfaction in, hey, this is all cool and it's great, but if it went away, it wouldn't really matter. And and we'd be okay. So what does matter? And then we saw discrepancies. We travel, we both travel all around the world. We saw differences in lifestyles. Like, hey, well, what's wrong with these people? Nothing. They're just as smart, just as hardworking, just as talented as we are. What's the difference in the quality of life? We decided that we thought it was access to food, water, and electricity that really created these big differences in the day-to-day. And so we said, well, can we do something about that? And because, because we don't know anything, we thought maybe we can. You know, Maybe this is where we should put all of our money and our time and our interest is into doing something about food, water, and electricity. And we picked food first, Roger, and we thought last mile stuff was where we were really interested and uh, everything we solved for last mile seemed to have a bigger problem further up the chain. And so eventually we found ourselves looking at how your food is produced is where we wanted to start. And that's, that's kind of that long journey of how do we end up leaving technology sales and technology development to go into agriculture. And agriculture is far more interesting. And I have to say, no, no, this is going to be pejorative against the software folks. But, but it doesn't have to be. The people in ag are so much more interesting than the people in software. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love the people in ag. It's one of the things I, I get involved with. But I also feel like people that make good people in ag often have come from technology more and more. And and I'm I'm impressed with how many people that have don't have a farm background. You had a you had a farm experience that you were able to relate to. Experience right. they come in with the most enthusiasm. They grew in a city and didn't even have grandparents that could go out and visit the farm or something. Right. That uh, are discovering it. This is cool. This is what I want to do. It feels good. And and they can apply what they know in the world used in the world of technology. And and, and I think I think that's that's exciting. It well, I, I really am glad you shared this excitement with us today. You answered several questions. I mean, when I first got the note about what you're doing, I thought, boy, this is kind of weird. Uh, it looks really, really strange. But I like it. As you started explaining uh, the, the complementary nature and the way uh, it kind of supplements systems uh, with agriculture and applies the technology and the role that it's playing, uh, Man, you've checked a lot of boxes for me, and I think you probably have for folks that we have listening. So I want to give you one more time to um, maybe mention anything else that you want to be sure we're putting on the table, and also uh, be able to wrap up with reminding people again of where they can where they can find you if they want to know more information. Sure. Uh, the only thing I would say at this point is first, I really appreciate your style and uh, what you. You've allowed us to, you know, talk about in this conversation. I think that's that's really meaningful to me. Um, the second thing I would say is that we think so highly of the ag producer and the farmer of any type, but but we're focused on the ag producer. We think so highly of them. We're very grateful for for what they do and how many there are. 
in I think the 1930s, there were over 7 million ag livestock ag and ag in general producers in the US. And now there's just over two. So we've lost 5 million. Um, we want them to stick around. So our goal in building this company is to be a foundational partner in production that allows them to stick around and pass it to the next generation. But we're also trying to allow inroads for new producers. You, know, you talk about uh, a lot of these folks are coming from technology and other spaces uh, because they're looking for something that I was looking for, which is I wanted to find meaning in my work that was beyond a paycheck and beyond closing a new deal or, or, or making the shiny new dongle. I wanted to do something that that felt like it would last a long time. And that's what we're also trying to do. We're trying to allow new folks into ag that don't have the resources that ag requires. They don't have as much land. Um, they don't have as much knowledge. Uh, and so how do we how do we partner with them as well? That's really important to us. So our journey has just begun. We're three years old. Um, you know, we have our, our focus is on forage production. We're now expanding into what I talked about with the uh, waste upcycling into protein, fat, and fiber. We have a great partner there um, that's allowing us to, to do that already today, but we'll be on farm with that next year. Uh, our, all of our beta testing and stuff with that on farm is this year for the, the protein, fat, and fiber. I want to be clear about that. That is not something I can offer anyone other than this partner today. The partner is getting it, no one else until 2024. We, we iron out some of the details. But our journey is about the journey of agriculture. Agriculture from the very beginning has used technology as a complement, not as a replacer. You know, from the first hoe, the first, you know, stick that pushes in the ground to put a seed in, or the first lasso or, uh, you know, shepherd's hook. Um, technology has always been a complementary partner when best leveraged in ag. And I think that's going to be true indefinitely. Finally, we don't think the world as it is is inevitable. We think the world as it is is a result of decisions that have been made by people that have been alive. And since we're alive, we want to make some decisions that we think will lead us to a world that we like. And we like this world of livestock production being fairly local. And we'd like to get to a place where we're able to support livestock production to such an extent that you can get your meat, milk, and eggs from within a hundred mile radius of you year round. Um, we think we can do that with the meaningful partnerships with livestock producers. We can't do it without them. We don't want to replace them. We don't want to replace the land, the natural cycles, the regenerative programs. All of that is necessary. We just want to complement and enhance it. Boy, I tell you what, I, I think you're really on the on the right track. One of the things I'm grateful for is that a lot of my listeners make it all the way to the end. This is a longer than normal podcast, but I've heard back from my podcast uh, providers uh, that uh, where I publish from that uh, that I have an extraordinary high percentage that make it all the way to the end. Because as you might know, with podcasts, there are certain people that go halfway through. Well, that was interesting, but they don't go to the end. Sure. People that made it to the end of this one, Caleb, I think will have more than likely heard a message that's that's going to trigger somebody that they're going to say they're either going to be saying i need to follow up with you and learn more about what you're doing or be more like you and your company and on this journey and i i wish you well and i'm sure glad you shared it with us today on farm to table talk well we appreciate you and uh thank you for letting us be on and again i really appreciated the uh the warm-up conversation. So uh, next time on your journey uh, from from west to east, let us know. We'd, we'd love to see you or just give you some tips on some new places to see or eat at. 
Yeah, well, I think you say I go through Utah and at Sundance, take a right or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 